Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Matthew chapter 23, verse 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Matthew records for us this long passage of woes prescribed to the Pharisees, all leading back to the idea of hypocrisy. Jesus describes for us the behavior of the religious leaders of his day, beautiful on the outside, but full of death on the inside. He speaks of them broadening their phylacteries, which are these little prayer boxes worn on their foreheads that they keep some scripture verses in. You can almost see the smirk on Jesus' face as he talks about these boxes getting bigger and bigger as they try to seem more religious to the people around them. Now, we don't walk around with these little boxes on our heads anymore. But we are very good at taking good works and good deeds created by God for us to walk in and then turning them into idols. Our work in fellowship and hospitality, listening to sound podcasts and articles, each of these things and many others, like the scriptures in the little boxes, are blessings from God to help sanctify and teach us. Our issue is always twisting those good gifts around. As God's people... We need to strive against this outward show of righteousness, but truly examine our hearts, recognizing our daily need for forgiveness and repentance, and seeking to extend that forgiveness to our neighbors. We need to work and live in such a way that our deeds are pleasing to our Lord and not done to glorify ourselves or by seen, seen by men for our own praise. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. for us, uh, the Old Testament lesson from Judges uh, chapter 6. Let us open with prayer. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. King Solomon in Proverbs 3 tells us, My son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. We all know that this is true. We all know the Lord is a loving father who often needs to correct his children. We know it's true, but we don't like that it's true. It's a, it's a hard truth for us. Uh, just like any children, we, they know that their parents at times have to correct. They don't like it. We know that God disciplines those he loves, but we kind of wish that wasn't the case. Our text in Judges 6 opens with the refrain common throughout the book of Judges. The children of the Lord, excuse me, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Often throughout Judges, we see, we see this happen. The people of Israel, they're in the land. They're supposed to have taken conquest of the land, but now, again, they did evil in the sight of of the Lord. And the result often is the Lord selling Israel into the hands 
of their enemies. But this time, the Lord doesn't sell Israel into the hands of their enemies. No, a different term is used. The Lord delivered Israel into the hands of their enemies, or the Lord gave them over into their enemies' hands. We almost get the picture here that the Lord's patience is running out. He's not even looking to, to sell them to their enemies over uh, anymore. He's just giving them over. He's delivering them to their enemies, delivering them over to judgment. And the judgment that they suffered was truly severe. You heard about the judgment that they faced under the oppression of Midian. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel so much that the people hid out in caves in the mountains. Every year, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up to destroy the crops and livestock, leaving Israel without sustenance. Imagine that. We, we, heard, uh, we gave thanks in the prayers uh, just a few minutes ago for the abundance of the earth and the crops, the harvest that we will enjoy. We know every year the Lord blesses us. Uh, we see the farms around us. Well, imagine if, if we knew that more than likely our, our enemies, you can imagine whoever that might be in, in our situation, in our context, but that we had some oppressors, some enemies who would sweep in just as we're about to reap the harvest. And they would take the fruits of our fields, take our crops. Not only that, they would then go through and, and wreck the fields. They would let their, their livestock graze on what's left. That's what Israel's facing under Midian. That's why we see Gideon uh, threshing in the wine press, hiding out. Israel is facing severe trials and suffering. Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, we're told. But lest we feel too sorry for them, remember, this is the Lord's doing. The Midianites are the bad guys. The Midianites are their enemies, their oppressors. And yet, this is the Lord's doing. The Lord is bringing Israel's enemies in. He's, sold, he's given Israel into the hand of Midian. This is all because the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they should have known what would take place. Listen to the curses that come from breaking the covenant outlined in Deuteronomy 28 something that ought to have been familiar to the people. It shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. That's precisely what they're facing now oppressed and plundered continually. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from before you, and you shall not, it shall not be restored to you. Sheep shall be given to your enemies, and you shall have no one to rescue them. So Israel is facing just the oppression that was told of them that they, that they would face if they rebelled against the Lord, if they failed to obey his statutes. Israel is under the heavy hand of Midian, and now, finally, after years of this oppression, now, finally, they cry out to the Lord. It, it took them that long. It took them years and years of oppression. You would think that they would face trials, and, and right away they'd see their enemies come in, and, and what would their first response be? To cry out to the Lord for mercy and for help. But no, it took them years. That's how, that's how deep they are 
in their rebellion. And in answer, the Lord sent a prophet. We don't know exactly who this prophet was, possibly a Levite, or perhaps due to the Levites' failures that we see uh, displayed later in the book of Judges, a prophet from outside the circle of the Levites. We don't know exactly, but the Lord sent this prophet, and the prophet lays out for the people the Lord's covenant lawsuit. I brought you up from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and all those who oppressed you and gave their land. I said to you, I am Yahweh your God. Do not fear or do not honor the gods of the Amorites, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, this is not what Israel was hoping for when they finally cried out to the Lord. Parents, you know, when your children get, in, get themselves into trouble, get themselves into a bind, they expect rescue, they expect help right away. Kids, you know, sometimes you, you get yourself into a bind and you're looking for help from your parents, but you know that probably the first thing, you know, unless it's obviously too serious and they need to rush you to the ER, the first thing your parents might say is, now how did we get here, you know? What did we say would happen if you did X, Y, Z? We want parents want to help their children realize sometimes the trouble that you get in could have easily been avoided if you listened to your parents' wisdom. And kids, you know, that's, that's not what you want to hear in the moment, but you also know that it's true. You also know it's right. This is the situation that Israel was in, only far more serious. Israel was not hoping for correction, for, uh, for rebuke. They didn't want to hear about their role, their responsibility in all of this. They wanted the Lord to come to their rescue. But before he will come to rescue his people, his people must understand what led to their affliction. They must come to grips with the weight of their sin. Isn't that the way that it is with all of us? Not just with children. That gives us a picture of, of, uh, of our lives, really, on a small scale. With all of us, we get ourselves into trouble. We fail to listen to the wisdom of God's word. We fail to, uh, to follow the leading of the Spirit when we know the Spirit's leading us to hear God's word and to conform our lives. We fail to be patient, to be humble, to be loving, and then we get ourselves into trouble. We don't want to be faced with the fact that, you know what, you're responsible for some of this. And part of the solution is repentance. Repentance, which means acknowledging your role, acknowledging your sin, and then turning from it and following the Lord's guiding, the Lord's direction. Well, God's judgment is declared over unfaithful Israel. You have not obeyed my voice, he says. And yet, even in judgment, God is acting in grace toward his people. God's judgment itself, it seems harsh to us, it seems severe, but God's judgment itself is an act of grace. God's discipline is meant to lead his children to repentance. When God disciplines, when God judges his children, it's not 
with the goal of rubbing it in their face, making them feel bad. Now, sometimes that shame over our sin is part of the process. But God's goal in, in judgment is discipline, which means leading us back. Yes, showing us the depths of our sin, but showing us so that we can turn again to the Lord. The next thing that we see is God taking the initiative to deliver his people. The angel of the Lord, we're told, who I believe is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came and sat under the terebinth tree in Ophrah. And trees in the Old Testament, especially terebinth trees, we see that our oak trees, as it's also translated, uh, we see this often in the Abraham narrative. These are places of meeting, places where God meets with man, symbolizing man's ascent to God, man's ascent by God's grace to his presence. Well, here the angel of the Lord comes to appear to Gideon while he's threshing wheat in the winepress, hiding it from the Midianites, and says, Yahweh is with you, you mighty man of valor. What good news. What comfort that is. The Lord is with you. But Gideon is not so sure. Oh my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So there may be a little bit of, of uh, whining going on, a little bit of, woe is me. The Lord is with us. Well, then why is all this happening? If the Lord's with us, why are we going through such hard things? And again, we can see ourselves in that. God has promised us his grace and his blessings. God has, I, I'm, I'm a child of God. Why am I going through trials? Why am I suffering? If the Lord is with me, it may be that there's some of that going on in Gideon's response. Well, this sounds like a blatant contradiction of the word of the Lord. Context, though, indicates there's maybe more going on. I don't think, I don't think there's, that we can completely exclude that there's this kind of woe is me attitude from Gideon. There may be some of that. But Gideon rehearses here what the prophet has already told the people. Yahweh is the God who delivered Israel out of bondage in Egypt and planted them in the land. But now the Lord has forsaken them and handed them over to the Midianites. Gideon is acknowledging their plight and perhaps implicitly acknowledging their own sin as the source of their trouble. Part of what clues us in is uh, uh, that this is Gideon's intention is the Lord's response. After Gideon's words, the Lord turned to Gideon, showing a restoration of fellowship. The Lord has turned once again to his people. It's true that the Lord forsook his people. The Lord turned from his people, delivering them over to their enemies. But now the Lord turned once again to his people, blessing them, showing his face to them, restoring fellowship. And he sent him, he sent Gideon, saying, Go in this might of yours, you shall save Israel from the hand of, their, of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? This is the answer to Gideon's, why has the Lord not rescued us? Am I not sending you? Go and rescue them. Gideon's response could in a way remind us of the humility of Moses, who knew he was unworthy and unable 
in his own strength. Gideon's clan is weak, and he's the least in his father's house. His position picks up on a couple of important themes in the uh, scriptures in the Old Testament. The son replacing the father, and the younger brother replacing the older. These are common themes throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Gideon's father, Joash, we're told, is a worshiper of Baal. When Gideon goes to destroy the altar, it's the altar in his father's house. But Gideon, the son, will be faithful where his father failed. We see this pattern picked up by the Lord himself. All of Judges. Judges is a a strange and often alarming and disturbing book. We, We know by faith that all of the Old Covenant scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus tells us that Uh, The law and the prophets and the psalms all point to me, to his cross and resurrection. Our our faith is tested when we come to the book of Judges and see all of these strange and sometimes gruesome stories. But all of this, in some way, points ahead to Jesus. Jesus, in a sense, is the new Gideon, the greater Gideon. He follows in the same pattern as Jesus is the second and the last Adam, Where Adam failed, just as where Joash, Gideon's father, failed, where Adam failed, Jesus is faithful. And we're going to, well, we would see if we continue on uh, that Gideon's faithfulness redeems his father, convicts his father, and leads to his father's repentance. Jesus' faithfulness redeems Adam, redeems humanity, redeems his people. Gideon is the younger son who is faithful where his older brothers failed. Throughout scripture so far, we've seen this theme of older brothers, whether it's Cain, Esau, the older uh, son of Jacob, fall, and the younger brother carry on the faith. Again, this is fulfilled in Jesus as he replaces the firstborn, Adam, as the true and greater Adam, the true, the, the head of the new humanity. Well, Gideon responds in humility. He's the least of his father's household. We know he's mature in age. In chapter 8, we we see that he has an at least teenage son. But he would not have reached a a stage of eldership. He refers to himself as a youth, a young man. God is going to use this humble young man to bring him to greater maturity and faith, to train him for war. That's been one of the uh, purposes that, we, that uh, is shown to us earlier in Judges, that God is training his people for war through these trials. Again, the Lord repeats his promise of his presence. Surely I will be with you. Think about that. As Gideon is being sent now to rescue the people, to deliver them, what more could he hope for? What more could he ask? And really, what more could any of us hope for? We have all kinds of things that we ask of God. And it's not wrong to have all of these requests, these petitions. Good health, blessings for our loved ones, financial well-being. These are all good and fine things to ask. But what greater gift can God give than this? I am with you. God's presence with his people. There's nothing more he could offer. And not only has he offered this, But he has followed through and given himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. 
Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us. We have nothing to fear. Just as Gideon is assured through this, we have nothing to fear. Whatever trials, whatever uh, sufferings we face, God is with you. God is teaching his people and judges to make war, and he assures Gideon that he will be with him to lead Israel to victory. The first step in this holy war is trust. It's faith. The people are to fight by faith, and it's faith in God's presence. This war will be won by faith. Gideon asks for a sign to accompany God's promise. And again, there's nothing out of place about Gideon's request. The Lord always gives tangible signs to his people in the Old Covenant. We see that. And the Lord gives signs to us. What follows is a fellowship meal that Gideon shares with the Lord. A meal restoring fellowship between God and his people. Especially at a time like this in Israel when life is hard under the Midianites and sustenance is sparse. This fellowship meal that we saw described in Judges 6 is extravagant. Gideon prepared a young goat. No small task. I, I admit I've never, I didn't grow up on a farm. I never have butchered a goat, but I can imagine that's quite the involved process. He takes this goat and prepares it. He bakes unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. It's a pretty big amount of flour. At a time when resources were scarce for Israel, this was an extraordinary act of faith on Gideon's part. The use of unleavened bread, just as with the the Passover, signifies a break from the old leaven, a break from Israel's way of living that they've uh, been going through for these last years. It signifies a break from what's led them into this trial. Gideon's act of faith here is showing we are cutting ourselves off from that old way, from our rebellion. We are being restored now to fellowship with God, repenting, turning once again to the Lord. And the meal that Gideon shares here picks up on the peace offering. We could look at, if we had time, uh, throughout Leviticus. We see these offerings uh, given to the Lord in the tabernacle and temple system. What Gideon is doing here is restoring peace, or rather the Lord is restoring peace with Gideon, and, and Gideon is picturing all of Israel. All of Israel is being brought back into fellowship with the Lord. Gideon brought the meal to the angel of the Lord who instructed him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. The rock became a temporary altar, a place where sacrifice is being offered, where worship is being offered. When Gideon did so, the Lord touched the food with his rod and fire rose out from the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened bread. God's rod, the instrument of his judgment, brought fire and consumed the offering. But remember, in the sacrificial system, fiery judgment sounds harsh to us. You know, we, we get the image of you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We're, we're all, uh, which isn't a, a bad sermon uh, in its context, but we, we get this image of God's judgment as this fearful thing that we want to avoid. But in, in the Old Covenant, in the tabernacle and temple worship system, it's not all about destruction, Under God's wrath, God's fiery judgment transforms the offering 
and thus the worshiper who's being represented. The offering is transfigured in smoke as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Through the peace offering, fellowship is being restored. Yes, the fire of God's judgment consumes what's on the altar. The fire of God's judgment consumes, destroys. But also, in a sense, if you are, if you are coming in contact with the fire of God's judgment, with the, the fire that is God, that consuming is not a destruction of who you are. It's not a destruction of your person, but an incorporation. God consumes us. He, he brings us into himself. God's judgment is fearful. We don't want to take away from that. But if you are in Christ, what loss do you experience when you come in contact with God's fiery judgment? The dross is burned away. That which is, is holding you back is, is destroyed. You are refined because you are in Christ. And so when you come into contact with the fire of God, you are refined and purified. You are warmed by that fire, enlivened. This is exactly what's happening now for Israel. They're being restored to fellowship. Well, throughout Gideon's offering, fellowship with God, uh, through, through Gideon's, Gideon's offering, fellowship with God has been restored. God has given his presence once again to his people. He's met with Gideon at the altar. Gideon has seen the angel of the Lord face to face, and he's lived. And he built there an altar, and he named it Yahweh Shalom, the, the Lord is peace. Now the necessary implication of right worship and fellowship with the Lord must follow. We read, now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second, of the, seven, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to Yahweh your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer an ascension offering with the wood of the image which you have cut down. The Lord is a jealous God. Two altars cannot exist side by side. Yahweh and Baal are mutually exclusive. Gideon has established the altar to the Lord, and that means that the altar to Baal must come down. The altar, the wooden image, are going to be destroyed. The wood from the, uh, from the wooden image, uh, from the Asherah, is going to be used uh, for this ascension offering. Israel cannot serve two masters. And so it is in our own day and in our own lives as well. We, the church in the West, find ourselves in a time of decline. You know, we, we can't always pinpoint precisely sin A leading to consequence B when we look at a grand scale. But we can confidently say, I think, that what we are going through in our society and our culture is God's judgment on a wicked and rebellious society. I don't think it takes much to convince you of that. Uh, I don't want to harp on, on all of the areas that we see this happening because I know that you're already well aware. As a faithful congregation, as faithful Christians, following God's word, it's, it's impossible not to see 
all the ways that the culture around us is in rebellion and is in decline. But what I want us to take away is this. We must recognize God's grace in judgment. When we face God's judgment, we need to give thanks. We need to recognize that God's judgment is gracious. It is a gift. And we need to call the church and the world around us to respond appropriately to that judgment. Yes, God's judgment destroys. God destroys those who refuse to bow the knee. Uh, the kings of the earth who will not submit themselves to Christ, the King of Kings, will meet with destruction, with the rod. But God's judgment is also an opportunity for repentance. We need to call the church, as far as we see the church around us, Christ's church, uh, in rebellion or accommodating a rebellious culture. And we need to call the culture around us to respond to God's judgment appropriately. That is to say, to repent, to turn once again, and to receive God's grace and fellowship. Now that can be easy for us to say when we look at God's judgment on the culture around us. And it's important. We do need to bear that in mind and bear a faithful witness. But it's also true in our own individual lives. We, each one of us, go through times of pruning, times of discipline. And once again, as we just said on, on a cultural scale, we can't automatically attribute various sufferings, sicknesses, whatnot, that we go through to some particular sin in our lives. Now, the stories of Job, the story of the man born blind in, in John 9, make that clear. There are times when you're going to go through suffering, sickness, and, and your question is, why? What? I, I can't see anything that I've done. You know, of course, you know that you're a sinner, but you can't pinpoint all the time just what has led to such and such trial. But when we do go through times of trial and suffering and pruning, whatever the case might be, we need to recognize that this is God's loving discipline in our lives. Just as we open this. God is, is our loving Father who disciplines the children whom he loves. And Christians, God loves you. God loves you. And so that means that God will, at times, discipline and correct you and lead you once again to greater faithfulness, to greater maturity in Christ. When you face trials and suffering, don't despair. Don't, don't cry out, like Israel did, where is the Lord? If he's with us, why is this happening to me? You know, woe is me. Even more so, don't wait seven years before you finally cry out to the Lord. No, when you go through suffering and trials, recognize God's loving hand on your life, that God is leading you closer and closer to Christ. God is conforming your life to the image of his Son, so that one day your life will be a story of how God led his child, his disciple, through sufferings, through trials, to greater glory as we await the resurrection of the dead, when we will be free from all the effects of sin and death, when we'll be conformed finally to the image of Christ. And when you go through whatever these trials might be in your own life, 
Remember God's word to Gideon, echoing to you, Surely I am with you. Peace be with you. Do not fear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. morning, reminded God's presence is a fearful thing. God promises to be present with us, and he is present with us in word, as his word is read and preached to us. He's present to us as we gather at his table. The spirit gives the son to us that we would be nourished by his body and blood. God's presence is a fearful thing. If you are coming in rebellion, if you are coming uh, harboring sin. But God's presence is also a comfort. When we come to the Lord, and you have come confessing your sins and hearing of God's pardon, trusting in God's grace and forgiveness, and now you come to God's presence and you have nothing to fear. God will do the work in you that he needs to do. There are times when God needs to refine you and discipline you. And God will do the work he needs to purify, to mature his children. As we come to his table this morning, know that God is here working in your life. That as you have encountered God in his word read and preached, as you encounter God in fellowship with him at his table, as you encounter the Lord, as you fellowship with one another and he is present to you through the spirit indwelt church community, speaking encouragement and at times speaking correction into your life. Know that God's presence is a comfort and a grace. The fire of God's presence for those who are in Christ is nothing to fear. It purifies us. It warms us, enlivens us, incorporates us into the fellowship of the Father and Son, Holy Spirit. As we come to the table of the Lord this morning, all who have been baptized into Christ are invited. All who have been baptized and are not under the discipline of the church are invited to come to bring your children to feast and give thanks at the Lord's table. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings. Blessings.